I'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We ask, Lord, that if we look, as we look at the scriptures, that you'd help us to understand them, that you'd help us to understand the great doctrines of the faith that you have revealed to us. And uh, we do pray, Lord, that you'd help us to uh, persevere into that day that you come again for us, all through your means of grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, we've been through this message thus far called uh, Systematic Theology. We're looking at the question, are you a Calvinist? And I began the whole discussion by saying that's a very difficult question to answer, simply because when people ask, are you a Calvinist, normally what they mean is, do you believe in the doctrine of election? That's really what they're asking. Well, we do here believe in the doctrine of election and gospel of grace fellowship, and therefore we would agree with Calvin on that point. But as I've been showing you on this screen, there's a lot of areas where we disagree. Now, last time we left off with the Lord's Supper. We showed you the proper understanding of the Lord's Supper. It's primarily about remembering what Christ has done, but also proclaiming this victory that Christ has for us until he comes again. Now, this week, you and I are going to be looking at the relationship between Israel and the church. This is something where we would disagree with Calvin and many of the Reformed on. Why? Because in the Reformed tradition, Calvin and many others believe that the church is now spiritual Israel. And so what we're claiming is, no, there are promises for a literal Israel that one day national ethnic Israel will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will set up a literal millennial kingdom in which he will reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. And in that time period, there will be no more war. There will be a time of peace. It will be a time where all the nations will flow up to Zion and they will give honor to the Lord. In fact, in Zechariah 14, we learn that if there's some nation won't go up to honor the Lord, he will not send rain upon their land. And that shows us that, yes, indeed, there will still even be unbelievers on the earth during that time. After all, true believers will not have to be coerced to go worship the Lord. So let's listen to what Calvin says regarding the church in Israel. And as I do so, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 11, specifically uh, verse 26. Romans 11, 26. And we're not going to read it right away, but we're going to be coming to this passage And what I want to do is I want to read to you what Calvin said in a commentary about Romans 11.26. In Romans 11.26, Paul succinctly says, all Israel will be saved. So the question is, what does Paul mean by all Israel? I take that in its natural sense to mean national ethnic Israel. But I want you to listen to how John Calvin understood that. Listen to what he said. He said, quote, And so all Israel, etc., he says, many understand this to the Jewish people as though Paul had said that religion would again be restored among them as before. Now this again is Calvin. He says, but I extend the word Israel to all the people of God. According to this meaning, when the Gentiles shall come in, the Jews also shall return from their defection to the obedience of faith. And thus shall be completed the salvation of the whole Israel of God, which must be gathered from both, and yet in such a way that the Jews shall obtain the first place, being as it were the firstborn in God's family. This interpretation seems to me 
the most suitable because Paul intended here to set forth the completion of the kingdom of Christ, which is by no means to be confined to the Jews, but is to include the whole world. So that's the end of the quote. What is Calvin saying? In Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel is being defined by Calvin to mean every believer, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Now, what I want you to do is look at the passage once. In fact, we'll begin in Romans eleven twenty five. Let me begin there. And let's read and see if his position is tenable. Is it possible that all Israel refers simply to every believer? Well, in Romans eleven twenty five, Paul begins. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now let's stop there in verse 25. Notice he talks about this partial hardening that's happened to Israel. Now, Israel there must be national ethnic Israel. Why? Well, certainly you wouldn't have a partial hardening over those who are believers. Because if there was a hardening upon believers, they wouldn't be believers. Are you with me? So where was there a partial hardening? Well, it was on national ethnic Israel. In fact, eight times prior to verse 25, Israel is always used by Paul as national ethnic Israel. Now in verse 25, we have the ninth instance in a row in which Israel refers to national ethnic Israel. Why is that important? Because the very next verse, if Paul had intended something other than national ethnic Israel, he would have to tell us or tip us off in some way so that we would know now he's talking about spiritual Israel, Israel comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Are you with me? But he doesn't do that. Notice what he says in verse 26. He comes with a summary. He says, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. Okay, so stop there. When he says, so all Israel will be saved, nine times prior, he's just used Israel as national ethnic Israel. What should we expect here now? National ethnic Israel. Okay, now what's very interesting is what does he cite to prove his case. He cites from Isaiah 59.20, which says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, can somebody look up Isaiah 59.20 and read that from your Old Testament Bible? And maybe, Eric, you can, uh, I don't know if you have a mic. Oh, I'm sorry, we're mic- micless. Oh, Okay. Gotcha. Uh, Carly, would you, would you mind finding whoever can turn to it first? Or maybe, uh, Brian, do you have it? Yeah, Brian, perfect. Well, I have Brian do it. Thank you. This is Isaiah fifty nine twenty. So listen, and I want you to see there's a slight difference from Isaiah fifty nine twenty as recorded in our Masoretic text, the Hebrew, from what Paul is citing. And I want you to see if you can detect what that difference is. Go ahead. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Yeah, very good. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, and that's, we'll leave off there. That's the most important yeah. point here. So notice, does anybody catch the difference between the Hebrew and how Paul cites it here? 
Those who turn from read transgression. It. Oh, yeah, read it one more time. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Notice the phrase, will come to Zion. Notice as Paul says it here in verse 26, he says he will come from Zion. So what is Paul doing with Isaiah 59, 20? I think it's instructive. Is he just playing fast and loose? The original Hebrew says that the deliverer is going to come to Zion. Okay, in fact, do you remember in Psalm 118, 26, where it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh? That's where Isaiah is getting that from. So the idea is one day they expected that Messiah is going to come to Zion. And he's going to be the one that brings salvation to them. In fact, this is why as Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, what are they crying out? Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. He's the one who comes. John the Baptist, remember the moment of despair that he has? He wonders, is Jesus really the true Messiah? The question he asks is, are you the one who comes? All that goes back to Isaiah 59, 20 in Psalm 118:26. When Jesus leaves the temple desolate, he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. He was the deliverer that was to come to Zion. But what's interesting is Paul changes it now to that he will come from Zion. Why? Because in Paul and the New Testament writer's understanding is Zion, oh yes, there will be a literal physical Zion established during the millennial kingdom, but the true ultimate Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem from where Christ comes. And so certainly he's talking about this second advent. At the parousia, is the time period, that's the technical expression for the coming of the Lord, from where Christ comes is the time period in which Israel is going to be reestablished as a nation when their deliverer comes from Zion. So I think it's a reference to the heavenly Zion, just as you see, for example, in the book of Hebrews, references to the Jerusalem that's above. You also see that in Galatians as well. So that's the issue going on there. Now, Oh, I'm sorry. We got a question or a comment. Yes, Lonnie. Well, oh, hold on. We'll get you on. We'll get you on record. So anything you say can and will be held either against you or for you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Hello. Oh, okay. Um, Okay, I I was just kind of wondering, any prophecy that is in the New Testament, isn't that, didn't the authors always take that from the uh, Greek Septuagint? So it's worded differently than what we would see it? Yeah, that's true. Lonnie, normally the Bible of the New Testament writers, when they cite it, it is, in fact, from the Septuagint. In this instance, though, the Septuagint follows the Masoretic text. So for everyone, if I'm, I'm speaking in riddles here, it sounds the Masoretic text is Hebrew. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of that by Jewish scholarship. Okay, So the New Testament writers most often cited from the Septuagint here the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 
and the Hebrew text are saying the same thing. So the, what Paul is doing is he's making an application. Yes, in the first advent, Christ came to Zion, but now he's in the heavenly Jerusalem. He's coming back from there. And so that's why he's making the subtle change. He's reapplying that in light of Christ ascended on high, being ascended on high, and being seated at the right hand of God. And one more thing regarding that. Remember in John 14, Jesus comforts his disciples, and he says, I go prepare a place for you. Remember, in my Father's house there are many rooms. Well, where is that? Well, that's in the, the New Jerusalem. So and you, it's from there he's coming again. So yeah. you're saying Paul uh, changed, changed it a little bit? Yeah, and you know what? The way I would say it is he's reapplying it. So he's oh. just saying, look, this is for the Messiah coming to Mount Zion originally, right? Now he's coming from the ultimate Mount Zion. I think that's the best understanding of it. So he's not playing fast and loose. He's just simply reapplying it to fit the context that Christ has ascended on high. Yeah, does that make sense, Lonnie? Yeah, absolutely. So this would be a case. Remember we talked about what did the New Testament writers do with the Old Testament law? And for that matter, the Old Testament scriptures, they did three things. They repudiated the Old Covenant as a binding legal code. In other words, you can't be saved by the law. They replaced it with the new covenant, so now we're under the law of Christ. But they also reappropriated the scripture. And this would be one of the aspects of reappropriating scripture. Okay? Another example is going to be next week we'll talk about elders and how elders must not have, they must not be muzzled like the ox. Paul will use that passage. It's from Deuteronomy. He says, do not muzzle the ox. It's treading out the grain. Well, there, that was literally for oxen, but Paul reapplies that, reappropriates it for the New Testament. If you won't muzzle the ox who's feeding you, don't muzzle the preacher who's feeding you. That's what Paul's saying. So that shows us that, yes, ingrained with even in our new covenant, our old covenant concepts, the new covenant writers reappropriate it. So those three R's is what they did with the Old Testament. So I hope that makes sense. So now come to the coup de grace in verse 27 and 28. Uh, what I'm going to do is prove to you that all Israel must be national ethnic Israel. Notice here he's citing the rest of Isaiah. He says, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Then in verse 28, he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, let's read that. They are enemies for your sake. Let's just stop there for just a moment. If in verse 26, national ethnic, or I'm sorry, if in verse 26, Israel is other than national ethnic Israel, if in fact Calvin was right, and in verse 26, all Israel has to do with every believer, Jew and Gentile, how could they be described of, as being enemies of the gospel in verse 28? Does everyone see that? Now, who were enemies of the gospel when Paul was writing that in Mass? Well, national ethnic Israel was. So verse 28 proves to us that in verse 26, all Israel has to be national ethnic Israel. Does everyone see that? Okay. I'm sorry, Bob, you had something. Well, I was just going to mention, I debated a Calvinist one time on yeah. eschatology. Very interesting. And I pointed that out. When is the church the enemy of the church? Right, right. It's, it's not even sense. irrational. Right. And, there was, and when we went into Revelation, it was, a, again, <clears throat> how they interpreted that was untenable. Yeah. And in a 
years since then, well over a decade, I end up on my CIC emails, I end up having to debate Calvinists and Arminians. Oh, wow. Wow. Because the Calvinists follow their creeds and councils and catechisms. Yeah. Whatever the creed, council, catechism says, that's what they believe, and they can't depart from it. Sure. Or they'll get kicked out. Right. And the Arminians believe in free will, even though it's nowhere in the Bible. Right. So the Calvinists are thinking, well, see those stupid Arminians, if they, if they knew what they were doing, they would just join the creeds, councils, and catechisms. Oh, right. And the Arminians say... John Calvin was an evil person. He said this, he did that. Yeah. And look what all they did. So that must be wrong. We're going to believe in free will. Wow. Even though it's not in the Bible. Great. And so people are really thinking, and I'm just giving you a report from my email that I get through CIC. And Jessica probably has seen the same thing more than me because she does all the other social media. I'm real savvy. I just have email. (laughs) But... They think you have to choose one or the other. It's almost as if in mass, Christians think you can't actually understand and follow the Bible because they want to choose this or choose that, and then somebody else already figured it all out. Right. And we're not allowing for that option at Gospel of Grace Fellowship. We believe in the priesthood of every believer. We we believe in the authority of Scripture. Yes. And we believe in the clarity of Scripture. Okay? And if the priesthood of every believer is true, and the authority of Scripture is true, and the clarity of Scripture is true, believers can actually search the Scriptures like the Bereans and see if these things are true. Amen. So... I just tell the Calvinists, well, search the scriptures. Your creed and counsel isn't binding on me. Calvin was not an apostle. Uh, the people who wrote the Westminster Catechism and Confession, they weren't apostles. They never saw the resurrected Christ. They weren't appointed by Christ. They don't speak for God beyond scripture. And if I disagree with them, I do. I'm not under that binding authority, and neither should you be. Amen. And then they think, well, you're, you know, they think I'm just wanting to be a rebel, go run my own way. No, I don't want to submit to man-made doctrine that was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, on the other hand, the Armenians are saying, oh, you're just a tulip, tulip, tulip. I just got an email this last week. <laughs> tulip. I said, well, where's tulip in the Bible? Well, I've been preaching for 45 years. You tell me when the last time I preached a sermon on tulip. Go look through the archives. Has Bob DeWay ever preached a sermon on tulip? No. Yeah. And uh, it's never happened. Wow. So then why are you telling me I have to believe in tulip if I believe that God actually did what he said he did, which has saved us by grace through faith? Yeah. And so what I do with the Armenians is I send them to the solos. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Here's my article. Read it and tell me why you disagree with the solace. Yeah. What do we have to add to grace before God will save us? Yeah, amen. And then this one guy, I just had this debate. Yeah. He came back after reading my article and says, oh, you believe in tulip. I won't listen to you. Oh. 
Tulip's not even in the article. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I emailed him back and I said, okay, so you don't believe in grace alone. So what, why is grace alone wrong? I gave you scripture in my article about why salvation is by grace alone. Yeah. Grace, not grace plus what man adds to it. You debate me against on that point. They run away. Right, right. Done with the email, done talking. They're going to say, I believe in TULIP. I never preach on TULIP. I believe in grace alone. Well, then, after that debate, if, I, if you don't mind, can yeah, I do this? Yeah, yeah. I've been oh. rereading Bondage of the Will by Luther. It's very hard to read. You may not want to buy it. The problem is it, started, it was translated from German into Old English. Yeah. And so it's very, very hard to read. It's very cumbersome and laborious. And there's words in there I have to look up, and I read constantly. But what I noticed, the debate with, uh, with Luther against Erasmus and against Rome had to do with free will. And Rome teaches free will. And you have to cooperate with God. Sinners lost and unre- unregenerate have to cooperate first before God will do anything for them. And so then Luther was, and, and, and Luther said, well, where's free will in the Bible? Well, Rasmus's back comeback was the fathers in the councils and the fathers, the fathers, meaning church history from a Roman Catholic standpoint. Okay. Yeah, not the scriptures. The fathers. So then Luther tore into him and said, oh, the fathers. Well, the fathers are not clear. This guy said this. This guy said that. What father are you talking about? They're not even agreeing with each other. Right. They're contradicting each other. And you're contradicting your own self. And he quoted Rasmus where he contradicted his own self. Yeah. And he said, I don't know what you believe. And you tell me the scriptures aren't clear. And then Luther had page after page after page proving the clarity of scripture. Amen. And the reason that scripture alone has a companion doctrine the perspicuity of Scripture, if you see the technical term, or the clarity of Scripture, is that Rome was saying to the people, you can't understand the Scriptures. You've got to just listen to us. We're the fathers. Right, right. We're the authorities. And, and Luther said, well, you authorities aren't clear, but the Scripture is. Yeah, and so know. he's tearing into Erasmus. Well, what I don't understand, why people tear into me yeah. accusing me of tulip. right. And I've been, if you've been coming to church, do we not preach the gospel? Yeah. Do we not call people to believe and to repent and to trust in Christ? Well, I don't just say tulip, just sit there and see if you get regenerated. I don't teach that. Uh, And they tear into us over things that are false and it's not true. It's not what we teach. And they do not want to learn. Yeah. And then they can't figure out why evangelicalism went in a tank. You want to know why you lost your church? You don't want, to, want to know why the seeker movement came in? You know why they don't preach the gospel? Because you didn't want to hear it because the gospel has grace alone and you wanted free will. We don't have to go by Tulip or Calvin or uh, Council of Trent or the Fathers or the Councils or the Popes or the denominational statements and all this. We really can know the Bible. It really does mean what it says. We can preach the gospel. Believing in election doesn't mean not believing in the universal call. Right. 
Paul taught both of them right in the same place. Where he says, Romans 9 is very strong on election, Romans 10, whoever calls upon the name of yeah. the Lord will be saved. Luther was simply saying, the only reason you call upon the Lord is the grace of God turned on to light. Yeah, amen. But he uses means, which is the, the gospel preached. Dear ones, don't be deceived. It's not a choice between free will and Calvin. It's a choice between grace alone, scripture alone, the clarity of scripture and gospel preaching versus the traditions of men. Amen. And I thank God for our pastor, Eric, because oh, I, I told him, I told I think it was the last time he preached, I just feel safe coming to church because oh, well, Eric's going to go through. He went through some <laughs> difficult passages yeah. that people don't like. Yeah, that's right. And he just told us what it said. See, I would rather have a pastor tell me what it says than to avoid things that are difficult, like some of the things Paul said yeah, about amen. the widows and the right. and, and divorced and so on. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, amen. No, well said, Bob. I, um, I'm signing off. No, <laughs> no, that was excellent. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> That's right. I, did, I just want to mention the tulip um, for those that are. Um, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'll be right there, Adam. I'll just mention the, the tulip that Bob had raised, just for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the term, if you're new. Most people probably in here know tulip. Tulip was an acrostic that actually came from the opponents of Calvinism. It came from the remonstrance. There were Arminians who were responding to Calvin. And the tulip was the total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, limited atonement, and perseverance of the saints. Those are the things that Calvin believed. Now, what's very interesting is I'm going to be showing you later with the first T, total depravity, what, what really is helpful to understand the doctrine of election and the fact that God alone saves is the depravity of man. If you believe that humankind has some innate ability within it or is spiritually still maybe weakened but still alive, you'll believe that human beings contribute to their salvation. But once you realize, as Bob taught us in Ephesians, that we are dead in our trespasses, then you realize that salvation is of God. So oftentimes, uh, what I believe is in our systematic theologies, if you look at total depravity, it's always removed from election. To me, it's what made sense of election. If I'm really depraved so badly that I can never, in and of myself, come to faith in Christ... And that's true of every single person. Well, then how can anyone be saved? Jesus answered that question. He says, what man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's, in fact, his response to the disciples' questions. Now, I'm sorry, and I'll come, and Bob gave us a great segue of a point. I'll come here in verse 28. But first, let me call on Adam. Adam's got a Yeah, I was just going to say, when it comes to things like TULIP, now that acronym came much, much later. Uh, That that didn't come with the Arminian, like, remonstrance and uh, all of of those things. Was it the Synod of Dort? Was that what it was? The Synod of Dort. They they didn't use that acronym. That's a much later acronym. The the Synod of Dort, yep. Now, the, the issue with things like that is what's being articulated, properly, accurately represented, is it biblical? That's, that's all that matters. Uh, and 
I will defend it properly articulated uh, because total depravity, it's dealing with other nuances, but it's basically teaching men are dead in their sins. Exactly. Uh, it's the bondage of the will. I mean, it's all bound up with that. There's no island of righteousness in someone that they uh, can do any good, uh, as Paul says in, in Romans. And when you get into election, uh, the scripture teaches election. You, you have to deal with that. Uh, and when it talks about God saving grace, his redemptive grace, we're talking about grace alone there and perseverance of the saints that God uh, the work that good work he's begun in you he will finish until the day of Christ Jesus and when you talk about things like limited atonement might prefer particular redemption or something like that it's it's very very misunderstood yeah it's not saying uh, Christ died for all uh, we affirm without distinction slave free male female jew gentile uh, kings those who are in authority uh, you can preach the gospel to anyone but he did not die with uh, for all without exception teaching universalism Amen. it's the blood of the new covenant and those who become partakers of the new covenant have atonement those who are not partakers of the new covenant do not have atonement Amen. where there's atonement there's the forgiveness of sins and the, the author of Hebrews you, you went through that again and again didn't you Bob so the, my, what I'm just saying is the issue is is it is it biblical test all things by scripture yeah, well, so we don't have to use the acronym is, yeah limited atonement it's a bugaboo because it's, that's why I wouldn't use it that term mm-hmm. uh, because yeah you're really choosing between universalism yeah and and just those who believe in Christ but people take it to mean God's going to run out of atonement yes right. yeah, that's, so, that's not somebody's it. going yeah. to come and say I believe Forgive me, Lord, I need Jesus, and repent. And God's going to say, oh, I'm sorry, we ran out of atonement a while ago. Right, right. Okay. And so that's why it's really a, not a good way to describe think, it. Think of Romans 8 when uh, uh, Paul says uh, that God, uh, that he gave over his son for all of you. So that you're forgiven. So your sins are forgiven and washed away. That's not true of someone. He's speaking about a believer there. Yeah. Uh, how will, will anyone bring a charge against God's elect? Yeah, amen. So that, that is a beautiful, a beautiful teaching of Scripture if it's properly, properly understood and articulated. Right. And so I, I'll, I'll teach well, it because it's biblical. He, yes, he died amen. for all, especially those who believe. Now, just be, here's the bugaboo. We'll get to this. We're getting yeah. ahead of well, Eric, you won't have to do as much study for the next one. That's right. That's it. right. Um, here's the point. We don't know. The limited atonement is kind of just a bunny trail in the sense that we don't know whose sins are atoned for before the fact because we don't know whose names are in the book of life. And so we're, it's just meaning universalism is false. Okay? And... Those who believe their sins are atoned for, the, the, the atonement is sufficient for all, efficient for the elect. That's, and so it's, it, you just can't throw up these acronyms and answer every question. Yeah. But we're rejecting universalism. Okay. Yeah, amen. You know, Bob raised a good question prior. Bob had talked about the distinction between people either choosing between Calvinism in Arminianism, and what's very interesting, and by the way, Calvinism in all of its points, not just on the doctrine of election where he's correct, but let me read the rest of verse 28 because this is something very interesting I want you to think about. 
Again, it says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, we stop there, and we said, look, that proves all Israel in verse 26 has to be national ethnic Israel, and that it can't refer to all believers, Jews and Gentiles, because then all believers in the gospel would be enemies of the church and enemies of the gospel. But notice the next point. He says, but from the standpoint of God's choice, here's election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Oh, yeah. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, who are the fathers there? Well, that's the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because God made a unilateral covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by the way, who's Jacob renamed? Israel. Okay, so God made an unconditional covenant with Israel. And because of the condition of the covenant, God will always be faithful to it. So here's what's very interesting. Think about it this way. The Reformed tradition has rightly the doctrine of election, but they've got no Israel. Well, Paul says, because election is true, Israel stands. People like Jan Markell in our discernment ministries, they have Israel, rightly so, Israel stands forever, but they have no doctrine of election by which it stands. And what we're saying is, let's get it together. Yes, Israel, Jan is right, Israel stands in the Armenians, by and large, but they stand precisely because election is true. That's the only way they stand. So if election is true, then Israel stands. That's exactly what Paul is pointing out here. So, brothers and sisters, we don't have to choose. Yes, election is true, therefore what? The promise is given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stand forever. Now, let me give you a quote from Louis Burkhoff. How many in here have ever heard of Louis Burkhoff? I know Adam and Bob and... Um, Dana have. In fact, you, some of you may have his hard copy. Louis Burkhoff was a Reformed theologian. He put out a systematic theology text that's so thick, I'm sure it'll stop a 50 caliber bullet. I mean, it is thick. If you want to have protection in a gunfight, you just get behind one of his, his uh, systematic theology texts. Very thick indeed. In fact, there's a lot of good things in it. But in his, se- his section on eschatology, being that he's a millennial, and he believes that there is no promise for national ethnic Israel, listen to some of the things that he says. Quote, this is Louis Burkhoff, and take note of the date. This is written in 1938. At least that's the copyright. 1938, Louis Burkhoff says, quote, all Israel is to be understood as a designation, not of the whole nation, but of the whole number of the elect out of the ancient covenant people. Premillennials take the 26th verse to mean that after God has completed his purpose with the Gentiles, the nation of Israel will be saved. Then he goes on to say, he says, the conversion of the fullness of Israel, both the Old and the New Testament speak of a future conversion of Israel. Then he cites, listen to what the passage is. He cites Zechariah 12.10, Zechariah 13.1, 2 Corinthians 3.15, Romans 11, 25 through 29. And he says, these seem to connect this with the end of time. Premillennialists, he goes on to say, have exploited the scriptural teaching for their particular purpose. They maintain that there will be a national restoration and conversion of Israel, that the Jewish nation will be reestablished in the Holy Land, and, and that this will take place immediately preceding or during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, Burkhoff goes on, he says, It is very doubtful, however, whether Scripture warrants the expectation that Israel will finally be reestablished as a nation 
and will as a nation turn to the Lord. Now, isn't it interesting, when did he write that? He wrote that in 1938. What happened 10 years later? So that's uh, the old saying, uh, slow to write, slow to retract. (laughs) 10 years later, Israel is established as a nation, aren't they? Now, the biggest issue, though, isn't whether Israel is established as a nation or not now. The biggest issue is the exegesis of Romans 11.26. How can all Israel refer, as Calvin at least said, to all of God's elect, whether Jew or Gentile? No. Nine times earlier, from Romans 11.25 earlier, Israel always referred to national ethnic Israel. That's exactly what it meant in verse 26. No, there really is a promise. Why did Paul write in Romans 11.26 that there remains a promise of Israel? Because the Old Testament demanded it. In fact, in Zechariah 12.10, Zechariah wrote of the day where the Israelites would look upon the one whom they'd pierced and they would mourn. They had mourned for him as they mourned for an only son. Now, that passage is actually quoted, the por- part, a portion of it, in John 19 for the first advent of Christ, that they looked upon the one whom they pierced. But the rest of that passage was not quoted because it was not fulfilled. They never mourned for him as a nation. That will be fulfilled. And that's exactly what Paul was building off of. So, brothers and sisters, there remains a promise for national ethnic Israel. And yes, the premillennial view is the better option. Uh, let's get to the next issue, and that's the nature of prophecy. When, when we talk about prophecy, and uh, for that matter, let me just finish this all up here, and eschatology, one of the big issues in the Reformed tradition is they often will spiritualize texts, for example, in the book of Revelation, or when it comes to all Israel, they will say, well, that's not national ethnic Israel. It has to be all believers, Jews, and Gentiles. When you come to the book of Revelation, they primarily in the Reformed tradition have been historists, uh, especially the Lutherans, where they take the book of Revelation and say, well, this has all happened within the church age. Well, if all these things have happened in the church age, what do they do with things like, for example, all of the demons that are let out of the abyss? in Revelation chapter 9. Has anybody ever read about that happening during the church age? Well, no, they have to spiritualize it. And so they say, well, it can't really mean that. Okay? So one of the big debates when it comes to eschatology was what kind of literature is the book of Revelation? The apocalyptic literature is often cited by the Reformed to say this is just apocalyptic literature. The problem with that is that apocalyptic literature was a genre of literature in the intertestamental period in which people would write using symbols, and they never told you what the symbols meant. So, for example, the Essenes were famous in doing this, and they would write, and all these symbols you could pour into whatever meaning you wanted to. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, and by the way, John calls it a prophecy, Okay, he calls it prophecy, but when he comes to symbols, he tells you precisely what the symbols mean. So you're not allowed to just fancifully read in what you want it to mean. For example, the dragon is Satan, the lampstands are the churches, and if he comes to imagery that he doesn't specific, or symbolism that he doesn't specifically tell you about, he's referring back to an Old Testament passage 
which tells you what it does refer to. So the point is, Revelation isn't this opaque picture. Years ago, I was teaching it to kids at a teen CBS. And I'm at a church, and I praise God for this church. They allowed us to be there. They had some theological differences, and it became very apparent when I looked on, there was a, uh, a section where they had Bible study materials laid out. Well, they were post-millennial. And I started looking at their Revelation literature, and they claim that Revelation falls into seven distinct units. Well, that would be news to John. John, the apostle who wrote it, he gave us the structure of the book of Revelation. He structured it by saying the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be. So roughly speaking, from Revelation chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, it's the things that were. From 4 to 5, it's the things that are. And from 6 all the way to 22, it's the things that will be. So we don't have to try to break it up into seven equal units. We don't have to do any of that. Why? Because John tells us the structure of the book. So here's my point. One of the biggest issues of the book of Revelation isn't its interpretation. It's really believing it. If we will believe what the text says, then we don't have to jump through hoops and say, well, it can't mean what it says. It can't, a thousand years can't mean a thousand years. We have to spiritualize that. The dragon can't mean that. The locusts coming up out of the abyss, which are clearly demons, they can't be that. No, it does mean that. And when Jesus said, remember in his Olivet Discourse, that this is the worst time period, he says, in fact, if this time period not be cut short, no flesh would survive. I've told you numerous times that means there's only one worst time period. And that worst time period, as bad as 70 AD was, didn't happen in 70 AD, and it hasn't happened yet in the church age. Are you with me? No, think about the fourth seal in the book of Revelation. You lose a quarter of the earth's population. The most we lost in World War II was 3%. The opening wars in the book of Revelation will be eight times worse than what we experienced in World War II. That's why Jesus can refer to that final period as a period that's so bad that none has been ever like it. And he says, no, nor will there ever be. If those days not be cut short, no flesh will, be, will survive. Dear ones, you can't have the worstest. You only have one worst time period, and it hasn't happened now. The futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation is true. Now, let me mention one other thing that you'll see in a lot of Reformed traditions, and I'm always puzzled by it. That's the doctrine of preterism. How many in here have ever heard of preterism? Preterism uh, is the belief, and uh, by the way, full preterism is heretical. It's the belief that everything... Even Jesus' second advent occurred in 70 AD. There's a moderated view called partial preterism. Partial preterism says that, yes, most of the events of the book of Revelation occurred in 70 AD. However, there remains the second coming of Christ. So, for example, R.C. Sproul, I love R.C., he was a partial preterist. And one of the ways he argued for partial preterism is he would look at the beginning of the book of Revelation and it would say, for example, these things must soon take place. Remember I talked about that? Revelation 1.1. These are the things that must take place soon. Well, R.C. reasoned in his mind, wait a minute. That certainly could not have occurred thousands of years later. It had to occur because it's soon within the lifespan of the apostles. So he reasons then that all of the book of Revelation has to happen within 70 A.D., Except 
he believes in the second coming of Christ. So he will say, for example, when you get to chapters 19 through 22, there still remains a fulfillment of those things at the end. The problem with that is at the very end of the book, Jesus says the same things. These things will take place soon. So let's take R.C. Sproul's logic. Soon at the beginning of the book meant it had to happen within the lifespan of the apostles. Well, the soon is at the end of the book. That would mean all of it would have to happen within the lifespan of the apostles. Therefore, you don't have a reign of Christ. You don't have a second coming of Christ. No, the better understanding of soon, what it was a building off of Daniel 2.28. In Daniel 2, the last days were always pushed off to the future. And so Daniel, in Daniel 2.28, he recounted a vision in which he says, these are the things that must take place in the last days. Revelation 1.1 1, 1 takes right from the Greek of that Septuagint passage in Daniel 2.28. It says, these are the things that must take place not in the last days, but soon. Why? Because we're in the last days. Ever since the first advent of Christ, we're living in the last days now. So the difference between Daniel's day and the day in which John wrote Revelation is the first advent of Christ. Daniel looked forward to the last days. John wrote the book of Revelation in the last days. As it says in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, that God in the past has spoken to us in many ways, in many portions, through the prophets of the fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us most fully through the Son. When did he speak to us? Through his Son? In the last days. The first advent of Christ brought in the last days. So, brothers and sisters, the book of Revelation isn't something that can be put into 70 A.D. It can't be put during the church age. And the irony is preterism. Do you know where preterism originated? Preterism originated, ironically, from the Catholic Church. Do you know why? Here's the irony. What the Reformers would do is they would look at the book of Revelation and they would tell the Catholics that their Pope was the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. So the way out of that was the Catholics said, no, 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 we have to come up with something. They keep telling us our Pope is the Antichrist. Well, what they did is they said, no, it all happened in 70 A.D., and therefore, our Pope, who lives in 325 A.D., can't be the Antichrist. Preterism is a Roman Catholic doctrine. What in the world are Reformed teachers teaching it for then? My objection would be we have to reform much further than preterism. Uh, uh, anybody on this? Any comments or questions? Yeah, Eric. Didn't Revelation get written after 70 A.D.? It did. I think that's what scholars agree on, so that, yeah. would, that would be a pretty good piece of evidence. Now, this is evidence. debated. Um, the, the preterists will try to claim that it ha- was written during the reign of Nero. I think a quote, there's a quote from Irenaeus who squarely puts the book of Revelation being written by John during the reign of Domitian. Well, Domitian's reign... Um, was roughly 94 to 98 A.D. So it squarely puts it much later than 70 A.D. I don't think there's any reason why Irenaeus shouldn't be taken uh, seriously. I think Eusebius, another church historian, also quotes from that. One of the powers of Irenaeus, his testimony, um, in my opinion, is that it borrows from resources like Polycarp and others who would have been 
uh, those who would actually have known John the Apostle. Okay, so the point is in 95 AD, I think that's the best uh, dating for the book of Revelation, at least in the 90s. Well, that's, what, 30 years after Nero. So it makes uh, the writing of during the time of Nero very impossible, and it shows us 70 AD cannot be the fulfillment of it. Yeah, Adam. I was also just going to add to that, if you look at John's writings, yeah, I think they are really uh, ordered. I mean, Revelation, especially uh, with the close of the, the canon uh, in mind. And so uh, that also has significance about uh, when, when it was written uh, in comparison to uh, Peter's letters, Paul's letters, yeah. uh, the, other, uh, the other gospels. Uh, John's gospel and then Revelation were clearly uh, written, written after. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the point is that those who say it happened in 70 AD, I don't, I don't think they have a leg to stand on. If we can prove that Revelation was written in the 90s, it absolutely refutes 70 AD preterism. If they can claim that it was still written during the reign of Nero, it doesn't necessarily refute premillennialism or the belief that it's in the future. But if it's dated in, 90, in the 90s AD, it does refute preterism. Uh, 100%. So with that, here's one thing I want you to see. Let me give you a little summary. I want you to look at all of the doctrines in which we have some disagreement with Calvin and the Reformed. Um, I'm going to be turning next to where we agree. But here was one of the reasons why I wanted to get into this topic. Bob and I each wrote, read a book put out by a guy named Bob Kirkland, and the book is called Calvinism, None Dare Call It Heresy. Here's the irony is this man takes on Calvin precisely where Calvin is correct on the doctrine of election, as I will show you. But what's ironic is he doesn't deal with any of these doctrines that you see on the screen where I think there can be clear disagreement between what the scriptures say and what either Calvin or the Reformed hold to today. None of those doctrines are even addressed. So here this man takes Calvin on in the precise area where Calvin's right, the doctrine of election. And if you're going to deal with the doctrine of election... Wouldn't you think you would have to, if you're going to deal with all the relevant data, deal with Revela- or excuse me, Romans chapter 9? Romans chapter 9 is a big one. If you look at the scriptural index, he doesn't even deal with Romans 9. Never even addresses Romans 9. Now, why am I telling you this? Because look at all the areas where, yes, there could be a critique of Calvin, and it's not mentioned. And then the one area where Calvin is right, I'm not saying there's just one, but the big one in the doctrine of election... He takes him on there and doesn't even deal with the relevant theological, scriptural material. And this is put out by Lighthouse Trails, which is a discernment ministry. Our discernment ministry has fallen for that. So that really is what made me sad. And because I kept getting asked, are you a Calvinist? And and I didn't want to give a thousand qualifiers. Yes, I believe in the doctrine of election, if that's what you mean, but I don't agree with Calvin and all of these areas. That's the reason behind this message. Now, what I'm going to do is I want to turn to an area where we do agree. And the big area that I want to focus in on is the doctrine of soteriology. Soterios in the Greek is the doctrine of salvation. Uh, sometimes Jesus is called Savior. Okay? Soter. He's a Savior. This is the doctrine of salvation. How are we saved? This is a doctrine where we have a lot in common with Calvin and the Reformed. So what I want to do is just 
generically talk about these different doctrines. First of all, we're going to be talking about justification, the fact that we have been saved. Sanctification, that we are being saved or transformed. And glorification, that we will be saved. Uh, One way of thinking about this is justification is where you've been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is where you're being saved from the power of sin. And in glorification, you're saved from the presence of sin. Now, this is all a, a whole when it comes to the salvation of God's people. So, for example, when you and I were sanctified, we were once and for all set apart by Jesus Christ for his kingdom and to belong to him. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why if you look at the term sanctification in the New Testament, 98% of the time it's referring to the once and for all being set apart. But there is a process in which you and I are being transformed. Remember Romans 12, 2? Do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. We are being transformed day after day, and that process is often referred to as sanctification. So that's why I'm using that term. Now, the one thing we want to focus on here at Gospel of Grace is the five solas of the Reformation that were saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, all by God's grace alone, all to the glory of God alone. Okay, we're going to be defending those and talking more about those. But one of the core doctrines in those five is grace alone. Because that's how we've been saved. Every evangelical will agree, yes, we've been saved by grace. But the question that I think is core and central to the doctrine of grace is why do some believe and some don't? And so that's what we're going to be turning to. Yes, Calvin was right that if you're justified, you're justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. In fact, let me read to you what Calvin said, and I'll cite a biblical verse that proves he was exactly right. Calvin says this, he says from his institutes, quote, I trust, he says, I have now sufficiently shown how man's only resource for escaping from the curse of the law and recovering salvation lies in faith and also what the nature of faith is, what the benefits it confers and which fruits it produces, unquote. I could give you so many more quotes where Calvin rightly says we're justified by faith alone. Yes, Calvin is right there. Why? Because that's exactly what the scriptures teach. Let's leave off on this last passage. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Romans 4, verses 2 through 3. Now we'll come back to this. This is we'll pick it up in a couple of weeks. But I want to leave you with this to show you Calvin was right on. Not because he agrees with me. I could be wrong. But because he agrees with scripture. Romans 4, 2 through 3 Paul says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, it says, for what does the scripture say? Now, this is quoted from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What Paul was showing is that Abraham was justified by faith. It wasn't by his works. So it is with every person. Justified by faith alone. In fact, notice the term credited there. The term there is legitimai. The term occurs 11 times in Romans chapter 4 alone. Legitimai means to have something credited to your account. So the moment you and I believe, we have our atonement 
and we have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. This crediting is something that's foreign to us. In other words, it wasn't that I just worked myself up to be a better person. No, the moment I believed, something that was foreign to me was credited to me. It came from outside of me. It didn't well up within me, as Roman Catholics often claim, but it was something that was foreign to me that was credited to me, namely a righteousness that came from God or Christ that was placed upon me. Yes, Calvin was right, saved by faith alone. And so we'll start unpacking now this beautiful doctrine of justification by faith alone, and then we're going to be asking the question, why do some believe and some don't? And that's going to get us into the doctrine of election. And that's precisely where when people ask, are you a Calvinist? They're really asking, do you believe in the doctrine of election? And we're going to wholeheartedly say, yes, amen. Not because Calvin taught it, but because the scriptures clearly teach that doctrine. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, for even these men who wrestled over the ages with your truth and your scriptures. We thank you for the Reformation and the light that they brought out of darkness. We thank you for your provision of the word, Lord, that you have given us a scripture that's clear so we may know that which is pleasing to you, how we can be right with you. And we pray as we proceed in our studies that you will help us to understand these doctrines. I also pray for Bob today as he explains the magnificent book of Ephesians, that you would bless his efforts. Give us ears to hear what he says through the scriptures. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.